Welcome to Talking New Energy, a podcast from Delta EE, the new energy experts. We'll be talking about how the energy transition is developing across Europe, with guests who are working at the leading edge of this transition. Hello, welcome to the new episode of Talking New Energy. Your usual host, John, is on a well-earned break. So today, you have me, Shoaine. Some of you listeners will be familiar with me, and I'm very pleased to be back with you all again. Today, in this episode, we're going to be looking at a controversial and complex topic. They're always the best, I find. The curtailment of wind generation. For those of you who are not active in this bit of the energy market, wind curtailment is when the output of wind turbines, uh, low-carbon generation technology, is reduced to below its maximum generation capacity. Curtailment has been happening for many years, but with net-zero targets and a dynamic changing energy system, it's increasingly getting more and more attention. Before we get going, it might be useful to put wind power into context. Total European potential of on and offshore wind is estimated to be in the tens of terawatts, with around 400 gigawatts installed today. That's a lot of potential for helping reduce, reducing carbon emissions. Today, I'm going to be talking about this with two of my colleagues, John Ferris, who holds heads up our flexibility and storage research, and Chris Matson from our new partners LCP Energy. And we'll be discussing how this is evolving using the UK as a really, really interesting example. Let's say hello. First, I'm going to give a quick hello to Chris. Hi, Chris. Hello. And hello to all our listeners. Yes, lovely. (laughs) Second time on the podcast. So maybe a quick intro for yours that might have missed your first episode. Yeah, so my name is Chris Matson. I head up LCP Energy's long-term energy market analysis and modelling. So look long-term, looking a long way into the future, I guess. Um, and uh, I guess LCP recently acquired Delta EE, so we're now working 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 together across a range of a range of projects. And um, yeah, I guess my my focus has really been on the modelling of the of the UK electricity market. Super. It's nice. It's nice. Always nice to have modellers on, I think. Um, and John, hello and welcome back. Um, do you want to give a quick intro to you guys? I think I might have stolen your thunder, actually, but you can in your own words. Thank you, Shaming. And uh, I guess it's not obligatory to have at least one John on the podcast, but uh, I'll, 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 I'll do my best. Um, I head up our flexibility and storage research services. Uh, so, yeah, great to have you back. And thank you both for your time today. Um, so, John, I'll start, I'll start with you. I'll give a really quick definition of curtailment, but could you expand a bit more and maybe give the listeners a quick overview of what wind curtailment is and why it happens? Yes. So, so curtailment is simply instructing a generator not to generate when it would otherwise choose to do so. Now, the two reasons why wind is, is typically curtailed First of all, it's that wind generates when it's windy, not necessarily when there's demand for the energy to be produced. So there's typically lower demand overnight and frequently in the early morning when it's windy, there is excess generation for the whole system to cope with. The second reason is that wind is usually located where it's windy and in some countries, say the, the UK, it's typically windy in, in Scotland and in the islands. Similarly, in Germany, there's a north-south divide where 
the wind generation capacity is higher in the north and demand is in the south. And as a result, when it's very windy, there can be insufficient network capacity to take the power from where it's generated to where it's needed. As a result, then either the wind is simply curtailed, it's prevented from generating, or the wind is subject to redispatch, where the wind that's not allowed to generate has to be replaced by the system operator also paying another generator to turn up where it's required. Okay, so it's where there might be too much wind or wind in the wrong place, and it sounds like there's a double-edged sword for having to make that up with someone else at another bit of in another bit of the country. Okay, I think that's a good recap. I'm not sure, but we might maybe we'll come back to. So, Chris, John's given us a, a, quite a nice little intro there. Um, could you could you kind of give us a bit more detail about how this actually happens in Britain? So, how does someone actually how does the the grid actually cause curtailment to happen? Um, yeah, sure. So, I guess as John's kind of described, um, you know, one of the, one of the main reasons that curtailment happens is when wind is when capacity is located and and a long way from demand and network capacity is not sufficient to transport it to, to consumers. Um, in Britain, that's that occurs most often due to high levels of wind capacity in Scotland and high levels of demand in England and insufficient network capacity um, between between that, that generation and that demand. Now, in terms of how that sort of takes place in terms of the actual market, so the, the wholesale market in the UK um, is unconstrained and is dispatched in an unconstrained way. So what that means is that when when um, energy is bought and sold through the wholesale market, so for example, in the day ahead auctions that are, that are, that take place a day, a day in advance of delivery, there is no consideration for those for those constraints on the network. Um, and so wind capacity can sell its power at the day ahead market to consumers at the at the market price, and there's a single market price for the for the whole of Great Britain. Um, and then that obviously potentially creates a problem when you then get closer to real time and there's going to be physical constraints on the network of actually getting that power to consumers. So in, 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 in GB, that's the job of, of the system operator National Grid ESO to, I guess, turn plants up and down in order to, in order to ensure that um, all of those network constraints are, are satisfied. And that's done through plants um, submitting bids and offers through the balancing mechanism. So the balancing mechanism fills a few different roles in, in, in the UK, but one of the one of those is is to is to allow National Grid to to resolve any any constraints on the system. Um, so typically, what you might see is wind plant in in Scotland, say, bidding to turn down, and in actual fact, they'll often be bidding at negative prices, so effectively being asked to pay to turn down. And the reason that they'll be demanding those those negative prices or asking for those negative prices is that when they don't generate, they don't receive their mm-hmm. um, renewable support payments. So when they're not receiving those payments, they'll need they'll need to make up um, they'll need to make up for that through the payments that they get through the balancing mechanism being turned down. And then, as John was saying, you're then having to turn something else up. So you have offers from plants in other parts of the country, potentially gas plants in England, who are offering to turn up, and that's. National Grid then takes those actions as well, and there's an obviously a, a net cost there too, which ultimately gets passed on to consumers. Okay, and just so I understand, this all all of these bids and offers all happens in the day before um, 
the day before in the day before market. Is that right? Um, it's happening. It's happening throughout the day potentially. So it's it's right th- right th- um, anywhere between sort of the day ahead stage and right through to to real time um, through the through that balancing mechanism. Okay, and I think as far as I'm aware, that's that's for the national grid, so the transmission network. Um, John, is is it a good time to for us to kind of maybe look at what happens in the distribution side of the of the network? Yes, it, it is because it's it works slightly differently on the distribution network, where you often have smaller um, generators, so either small wind farms or single turbines that don't necessarily participate in the balancing mechanism. They don't have the same connection regime to the um, transmission grid, where in in the UK, the transmission connection um, process is called connect and manage, where every generator that connects um, is financially firm and is addressed through the bids and offers that, that Chris described. On the distribution grid, which was typically built for demand and to to enable the, the flow of power from the transmission connected generators to consumers, it's a different mechanism. So when renewables first appeared, it it challenged the approach which was to give connections a firm connection. So they had the right, as long as they were generating, to put power onto the grid. The assumption was that being located closer to demand that any generation on the distribution grid would reduce the, the net load and be beneficial to the grid. And that was fine up to a while until the growth of renewables in some locations was so high, typically in the Scottish islands or the southwest of, of England where it's uh, sunnier, so for, for wind in the north and, and solar in the south, that you started to see reverse flows on the power grid. So rather than reducing imports to a particular area, power started to flow back out of the distribution grid and in some cases reached the point where it exceeded the hosting capacity of that part of the network. So that the exports were greater than the network was built to cope with. The response to that was was quite blunt and renewables were stopped from connecting to the grid. So in the windiest parts of, of Scotland, particularly in the Orkney Islands, there hadn't been a new wind turbine since about 2012 or 2013. That's clearly not a sustainable um, situation as we try to increase the, the, the renewables on the grid. So the distribution operators have tried a number of different approaches and the one they've largely settled on is one that allows renewables to connect to a a constrained grid if the operator has the right to curtail it um, when when it's reaching capacity or or when the flows on the grid would would cause a a problem. Okay so I think so if I, let me recap on this. So, it's too much containment happens when there's too much wind in the wrong place geographically, but also at the wrong level. And they've been there's been a couple of different instruments that have been used, which are some are more sophisticated than others, I suppose. Um, so that's really interesting, and I can you can see why how you know as you mentioned, renewables only need to increase um, with our lower emission targets. And I think I read somewhere that like the wind capacity of Europe 
last year, or no, the total annual capacity at the moment is around 250 gigawatts. If we think about the potential capacity, it's, you know, there's a big opportunity for wind, I suppose. Um, but uh, what you, you two have just described, it really feels like there's um, there's this, this need for containment is only going to get bigger. Um, and could you give a sense of how big that is and, and I suppose where it is? Um, so I would assume the transmission is big wind and the distribution it's small wind but you know I don't know if that's necessarily true um Chris maybe you, you first yes I guess we did, we did some analysis recently looking at you know how much of a of a problem this has been over the last couple of years and in total there was 5.8 terawatt hours of wind curtailment across 2020 and 2021 so across those two years and to put that in context that's about enough to power 800,000 homes in each of those those two years um, in terms of cost to the consumer, um, it was around three hundred million pounds in 2020, and over five hundred million pounds in 2021. So again, you know, significant amounts of money, and, and most of that cost, most of that five hundred million, is is not the cost of turning the wind down; it's the cost of turning something else up to take its place. So particularly in the latter half of 2021, we saw big increases in, in gas gas costs. That, um, that 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 cost of turning gas plant up to to balance out the, the wind that you're turning down. Um, and in terms of, of looking forward, I mean, National Grid have done their own analysis and they, they expect those costs to, to be over $2 billion by um, later this decade. And I think that analysis was done before the government increased its ambitions for the amount of wind, um, amount of offshore wind in particular that's that's expected to come on the system. So so some really big numbers there. Yeah. Um, and I guess in terms of the of the location, over over 80% of those costs um, that I talked about over 2020 and 2021 were, were associated with uh, the curtailment of Scottish um, wind. So at the moment, it's, it's mainly a, a Scotland-England problem. Um, although in the future there will be, there will, in the future there will be other other areas of the country that potentially start to become constrained. Feels like it will be resolved with a rugby match, but um, maybe <laughs> exactly. not. Um, and John, on on the, I don't know if you've got a perspective on the kind of the distribution balance because obviously, you know, smaller scale renewables, so where there's a lot of kind of interest, um, is that going to give us more problems um, when it comes to containment of wind? So th- this is one area where the data is much harder to come through than 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 for the transmission network. Um, it is a growing problem, and and it is quite quite widely known in particular areas, largely due to constraints on the grid where renewable developers either simply can't get a connection, or they're now having to wait for years to connect a project that otherwise would be would be ready to go. The regime that they connect through gives them a discount to um, to a firm connection. So it's not price driven when they are curtailed. They get the upfront discount. But if they can't even connect to the grid, then that discount is no value to them. Yeah, I mean, this feels like a really good time to talk about kind of um, winners and losers. Um, so we talked a little bit about people being paid to turn up and people being paid to turn down. Um, so there's like a financial benefit and, and um, or, or loss there. Um, but it's very, it feels very complicated. Um, do, you, do, you, do you guys have any kind of feelings of other winners or whether any of the people who are kind of being paid that, was it £500 million, pounds, Chris? Um who those are and um, what the other kind of winners and losers are in when this happens. Yeah, so I guess the wind that's being paid to turn down is, at least theoretically, is mainly breaking even. So it's just recovering 
the costs that it's the, the support payments it's losing um, and the gas that's being turned up is, is should should as part of the kind of balancing market mm. kind of what well, the rules associated with the balancing market should be only really recovering the costs of those turn up so no one's really make should be okay. anyway making huge yeah. amounts of money from this so really there are in some ways there are mainly losers which <laughs> is the fact that the consumer is having to foot the bill of of having to run more expensive generation when if the network had 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 been reinforced to a greater level than you or if the wind had been okay. located in different places then you would um then that would have those costs wouldn't have been there Okay, so uh, John, I don't know if you've got anything to add, but it just sounds like there's a kind of a need to reduce the amount of curtail what we do. But maybe I've got a hold of the wrong end of the stick here. Yes, I, th- I think that's that's the ultimate question as to whether curtailment is the best solution to this to to, to this challenge, or whether there are other approaches that could be taken. And and there's a big discussion we've mentioned the problems in in Germany as well about the redispatch mechanism whether they should move to a market-based redispatch because the costs even before the rise in wholesale prices for redispatch were heading into the billions and they are borne by consumers who are the ultimate losers if we can't find a better way to deal with the 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 curtailment of, of renewable generation. Yeah, so, it, I mean, have you either of you guys seen any kind of more interesting uh, initiatives or ways of reducing this need? Uh, I'm, I'm always a bit, I'm, I was saying to John earlier that um, policy is not my happy place, but, you know, I'm happy to talk about it. But I like to see what the market's going to do when it comes to these kind of problems. Is there anything of interest that you guys have seen? I mean, Chris, or oh, John, John, I'll go to you first because I've gone to Chris first before. <laughs> Thanks. So I've, I've been involved in a number of projects looking at how to how to implement alternative solutions to distribution curtailment. Um, one was um, before I joined Delta EE when I worked for a company called Electron, who had a, a project in Orkney, which has wind capacity that's greater than 100% of, of demand and is connected by to the, the Scottish mainland by two relatively small cables. So the wind generators uh, are unable to generate and frequently curtailed, sometimes up to 50% of, of, of the time in, in some extremes. So the concept behind that project was to create a market where using the network signals, so facilitated by monitoring of the network by the local DSO, a wind turbine operator could be informed that curtailment was likely to occur in the near future, and they could then trade with local demand-side flexibility and there's quite a lot of storage heaters on the island in order to increase demand and prevent the wind turbines from from being curtailed. So it would be a way of the consumers getting a discount on on the cost of heating their homes by soaking up the 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 energy that would otherwise have been curtailed. The generator gets to generate, and both should win in in that situation. So uh, for any of our listeners who are not familiar with the Scottish geography, um, Orkney is a very remote Scottish island, um, very beautiful, but also very windy and very cold. So turning up your storage heater um, is probably a very good solution and probably much needed. Um, anyway, John, carry on. Sorry. So the, there's another project that um, Delta EE currently working on, also with Electron and AFRI and the DSO Electricity Northwest, which is 
looking at taking the, the, the concept of having a curtailment queue um, and allowing assets to trade between themselves to, to trade f- to find the best solution. At the moment, if you want to connect to wind turbine to a constrained area, then you go into a process known as last in, first off. So if you're the last generator to connect, you're the first one that's going to be curtailed. And if you're a, a modern, more efficient turbine, it does mean that we are then more likely to be curtailing assets that are, are more efficient than some of the older ones that are allowed to operate. And thermal generators, whether it's coal or gas, that connected prior to this regime and have a firm connection aren't curtailed at all and allowed to generate um, as, as they wish. So the, the concept behind that project, which will run for the next three years, is to allow, first of all, the, 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 the renewable generators to trade between themselves and reorder the queue um, to make it financially beneficial for everyone. And then there's potential to bring in both firm generators who might be willing to voluntarily curtail and allow the wind to generate. And eventually you could even bring in demand side assets and create a a local market for flexibility to enable that that excess generation that would otherwise be be wasted to be consumed, benefiting both the, the, the consumers the generator and the network. So that's interesting because, I mean, just what you described just sounds like it's a much, much, you're starting to bring in lower carbon, a lower carbon element into how we choose to curtail or not, not curtail because we don't currently at the moment do much, right? It, it, it is. It's, it's looking to enable any asset that's able and, and willing to to participate, to to trade with with any other. And that's a very new approach on the distribution network um, where they've typically operated as, as a passive network operator, building out the network in order to meet growing demand rather than having to manage it more actively to, to manage the balance between generation and demand on that part of the network. Uh, that's a really good point, actually. So we've been that's been specifically around the distribution network. Uh, Chris, have you seen any kind of innovations on the on the transmission network? Yeah, so I guess National Grid's been running a few a few different what they call um, pathfinders, so constraints management pathfinders, where they've looked at ways of essentially running the network closer to its full capacity. So by having so because of the fact that you could lose a, a network, um, part of the network at any at any given time could could um, could trip or have a fault. You kind of need to run your your network below its full capacity to allow for the possibility of that happening. And I guess to it to stop to to run that closer to full capacity, they've they've got generators who are on these kind of standby contracts that they themselves will turn down very quickly in that situation, so that you can actually use use closer to your full capacity of the network. So that's that's one innovation that we've seen quite recently. I guess. Looking forward, there are, you know, th- those sorts of things are important, and you know, running the using what you've got close mm. to its full capacity and more efficiently is important. But in the, in the looking forward, this problem is going only going to grow, and and really, there's there's going to need to be kind of, I guess, larger kind of s- scale things to to deal with these sorts of problems. So, so on that side of things, you've got you know reinforcing the network itself, so building more network capacity, 
and National Grid has, yeah. has has a lot of plans to do that over the next decade. But I guess one of the issues in the UK is it's that that planning process of going from you know, identifying a, a need for that reinforcement to actually it coming on online is sort of five to ten years, if, if not maybe more. Um, storage has a role to play, so particularly longer duration storage, where you can essentially charge the storage um, asset based on based on that excess renewable generation uh, energy, and then discharge in a in a period where you don't have excess wind. Um, and similarly, you know. Uh, you know, finding finding uses for that excess energy. So, I guess one that has potential, again, in the longer term, is is green hydrogen production. Mm-hmm. So, using yeah. electro- electrolyzers to produce green hydrogen and using that green hydrogen somewhere else in the economy, potentially back into the power system to generate power at a different time of the year. So, there's a few of the of yeah. the um, of the kind of. So nice. I, like, I like the last example because it starts putting the all of these things in the context of the whole energy system, both from a you know, power and gas and heat perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, well, I'm just looking at the clock and I think we're going to have to move move on. But thank you for that. I think that's, um, I think hopefully it's given our listeners a really good overview of curtailment. I think the UK is a really good example because of our kind of weird geography and but also the extremities of uh, and the progress that the grid's making in various different ways. Um, now, usually at this time, John brings out his Talking New Energy crystal ball. Um, because it's me and it's not John, I think it's, I'm going to go off piece and make it a wishing well. So I think if you, I'm going to ask both of you uh, two questions. One, if you could either change or accelerate one thing that we've discussed today, what would it be? And second question, what would you see the biggest challenge in doing that? Uh, Chris, I'll go for you first. Um, so, so I think just just reinforcing the network faster, um, and so that that thing I mentioned, where basically you've had network reinforcement mm. capacity has lagged behind renewable deployment, and I think rather than trying to, you know, put some kind of restriction on renewable deployment, I think it would be a, it would be better if we could just reinforce the network faster, and if it didn't take five to ten years or, or more <laughs> to, to to go through that full planning planning process. So that would be my wish, I think. And, and to be fair, the government had did identify that and has, is, is looking to reduce those mm. those kind of planning restrictions as part of its energy strategy. So that's... that's so we that's, might see that one happen. We might too, yeah. John, um, over to you. So in, in taking the second question first, I, I think one of the key challenges is accepting that curtailment of renewables is going to be a feature of the future energy system. We are, there, there is still value in increasing the generation capacity, even if it doesn't produce when everything else is producing, because there's little value in that power that's being produced by the next turbine on the grid. However, when it's producing in sort of the, 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 the shoulder periods where um, there is demand that's not met by generation, then you can still add value to to the grid and to consumers. And that then creates an opportunity that Chris described as how can you create new uses for that that power that would otherwise be curtailed. And here, I I think I'll throw three coins into your wishing well. The first would be to have incentives for local consumption of the excess power. 
to enable that, uh, I think there is a greater need for two-sided markets. So moving away from the single buyer ancillary services where the DSO is the only one that, that that's able to trade to markets that are much more participative, where storage can either be buying or selling, um, where demand-side flexibility can also participate with generators. And finally, to pick up on your point about the whole energy system, I think it is that overlap between electricity and heat that if we can harness the the, the, the ability to store energy as heat and release it into people's homes or for um, use in industrial processes, charging up those heat batteries when when there's excess generation, that's likely to be a, a big opportunity in the future. Yeah, I think I definitely that's, that would be a great one for that to come true. The um, being able to com- kind of complete the circle. Well, I'll finish off today by thanking both of you um, for your time. So thank you, John, and thank you, Chris. Um, John will be back soon, um, but thank you again to all the listeners as well for your time. Hope you learned something today. If you're as passionate about the energy transition as we are, then please keep in touch. You can follow us and me on Twitter, LinkedIn, or subscribe to the podcasts on your chosen podcast platform. If you like the podcast and like sharing, then please do rate us. And to listen to archived episodes, to read transcripts, and to see the latest Delta EE insights, then please visit www.delta-ee.com. Thank you.